0: Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast, where we'll not only get you the insight to help you transition your career, but we'll have raw, unfiltered conversations about equity and access in corporate America. I'm your host, Tristan Layfield of Career Clarity Solutions, formerly Layfield Resume Consulting. And today we have on Jake Small. Jake is a career educator and workplace equity consultant. And Jake offers profound contributions to the topics of career equity, workplace justice, occupational wellness, diversity strategy, and culturally responsive practices. His passion for art, healing, education, and advocacy comes through in his natural ability to educate through storytelling, and he focuses on the intersections of identity, justice, and professionalism to uncover truths about the world of work. So everyone, welcome to the show, Jake. Hello, my friend. Hey, hey, hey,
1: hey. It's so good to be here. Hello, Tristan. Thanks for welcoming onto the pod today. I'm excited to chat with you a little bit more.
0: Yes, I'm excited to have you here too. Thanks for giving us the time, my friend. I really appreciate it. I know I know you're 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 a real busy guy. You got some things going on, so I appreciate you taking the time <laughs> to sit with us today. Um, you know, I know We don't fully know each other, um, right? We Mm -hmm. met each other on LinkedIn. I actually saw you interacting with a couple of mutual connections of mine. um, And I was like, who is this guy? So I went to your page (laughs) um, and I was like, oh, wait, we're both in the same space. I need to connect Mm -hmm. with him. And then I noticed a little bit about your work. And I was like, let me reach out and see if he'd be interested in coming uh, coming to the pod. So um, (laughs) I really appreciate you being open to uh, taking the message from a stranger
1: here (laughs) some of of the best professional and personal relationships i have in my life right now have been built through social media in some way or another um i think that a lot of people are you know thinking of linkedin as social media is new for some folks but it operates in some of the same ways as instagram and like facebook used to right and all these other platforms and so i'm i'm grateful that i have enough of a presence on this uh platform to be able to you know Catch the attention of someone as awesome as you. <laughs> yeah, when I first got your message, and I of course checked out your page and your headline. I saw LinkedIn top voice and career coach, resume writer, um, focusing on the same industry that I'm trying to focus on. I was like, oh, this has to be a connection that I uh, that I I nurture, and we see what comes yes. of it.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it's not often that I run across a lot of black males in this profession. <laughs> um, um, not to say we aren't here, but it's, it's few and far between. There's a, quite a bit more black women. Actually, you'll see from my guest lineup, like literally the first like Eight to ten guests were all black women. Um, so every time I I'm I- I- able to encounter, uh, you know, someone uh, a black male that's doing this work too, I was like, let's connect and sort of see see what sort of synergies we might have around this. So I appreciate it. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, and I'm just excited to jump in here. So yeah, um, yeah, let's
1: jump in. And I love that you've already started off with this identity consciousness, right? Because I'm sure that a lot yeah. of what I'll share today will be identity, identity conscious. Um, recognizing mm-hmm. some of my most salient identities, being a young professional, being being black, being a man, being openly queer, right? All of these identities overlap and intersect and they make me who I am as an educator, as a professional. I'm sure your identities show up in all the things you do yep. professionally. So. I'm happy that that's at the beginning of our conversation yes. today. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's always at the forefront of my mind because it mm-hmm. shapes everything. It shapes the way that we see everything, the way we interact with everything. No matter how much people might want to say it does it, it does, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, like so, so, you know, with this, one of the things that I like to be mindful of, we've got a lot of job seekers that are listening to the pod. And, and since we're in the career space and career development space and career readiness space, I always like to sort of start off talking to those people. So when you think about the people that you might be advising career wise or working with in that space, what would you tell them the state of the job market is? The state of the job market right now is blank. What would you say? Yeah,
1: definitely. And I think this is gonna be an interesting answer because I'm gonna say on this media platform that job seekers should stop listening to media platforms, right? Because if you read <laughs> an article, right, you look yes. at Harvard Business Review, you look at Insider, you look at any any of these platforms and you look at what it's saying, every day or every week, there's gonna be something new, right? Either the job market is warming, it's cooling, it's really hot right now for tech, it's really cold right now for, you know, whatever it is, it's always gonna be changing. So I think that's what's most important is that the job market is changing and job seekers, whether you're in the beginning part of your career, you're a mid-level professional or a senior executive, because this job market is changing, job seekers need to be as dynamic as this changing market, right? I always tell the students who I work with um, in different capacities that the most important skills they can develop and grow is the ability to articulate the transferability of their skills in different and unique contexts, right? Like being able to talk about what you can do um as a lifeguard or as a waiter or um whatever other job you've had in the past to get you that you know next opportunity is going to be really really important that transferability piece is crucial
0: yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with you. I speak to my clients on that all the time. And I always tell them that you, you never want to assume an employer understands the transferability of your skill sets, right? You have to explicitly lay that out for them. How does it transfer? Which means you have to have an intimate understanding of how it transfers in order to be able to even convey that to an employer as well. So I, I appreciate that you brought that up. And that idea that the job market is changing right now and ever evolving. I love it. I love it. And you can Tell them uh, on this media platform to stop listening to the media all you would like, because I agree. Um I think it's important for people like us to keep up with the media and sort of, you know, make our own interpretations based on the data and the things that we're seeing. But one of the things that really happened, especially once the pandemic hit, is talking about the job market in such a overarching way is no longer a, a, mm-hmm. a privilege that we have, right? We can't just say the job market's hot, the job market's yeah, cool, job truly. market's this, because if you look at it right now, by all numbers and standards, the job market is hot, technically, but then you are looking on the flip side and you see these companies doing all these layoffs and mm-hmm. all these things going on, and then you have the Fed talking about the interest rate and and um talking about inflation and how higher unemployment rate would help inflation and like all these, yeah. so all these factors come into where the job market stands. And so it's constantly shifting, constantly changing. And that can get confusing for people who are seeking jobs at this very moment. So I appreciate you calling that out.
1: There's so much dependability, right? So, you know, it changes. I can't apply for every job, right? During the Mm -hmm. height of the pandemic, um, this entire nation, as well as the entire globe, was, they're looking for healthcare providers, right? Especially if you have Mm -hmm. some background or training in uh, respiratory wellness, right? I was never gonna be able to apply for those sorts of jobs, right? Like Mm -hmm. I have a degree in communication, a master's degree in education. Um, The education field right now is very different than the medical field and the legal field Mm -hmm. and business. And so it's so dependent regionally. I have a lot of clients who are job seekers um, internationally and globally, right? So things look different in different places depending on the industry. So yeah, Yeah. it's, it's hard to put it's hard to put one adjective on what's going on with the job market right now.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree. Now, one of the things that I know that you have the privilege of doing um, in working in college career centers and things of that sort is working with Gen Z. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of Gen Z talent coming out of college right now. Um, and when we talk about Gen Z, um, you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the the Gen Z well the Gen Z talent that's coming out right now but just in general I think people have some some ideas around them some good some not so great but what are like a couple of things you think recruiters need to understand about those Gen Z candidates that are searching for jobs or how to attract and recruit them right now
1: yeah yeah so this is definitely you know I think what I have to say to this question is um maybe specifically for early career job seekers maybe Mm -hmm. also some candidates um, at the mid-level role. Um, And and I would say that what I'm about to say is debated. Um, Mm -hmm. But in a time of so much economic uncertainty, where the average Gen Z and and even millennial worker um, can no longer see a clear pathway to true financial freedom, right? And the Mm -hmm. conveniences of life of like, you know, home ownership, which used to be a much easier pathway in in past generations. um, Candidates are looking for, you know, to put it blatantly overall high compensation right they want to be compensated they want their overall compensation package to be to be high and and valuable right because there's so many things um that need to be paid for things need to be financed so many uh, uh bills and and loans that need to be paid off right so um folks are looking for compensation right it's not just uh we want somewhere that's nice to work we want somewhere that's fun to work we want some lots of perks um overall Compensation needs to be high, needs to be at value with, with what folks are doing. Um, for a lot of folks, flexibility is super important. That means different things for different people, right? It, it might mean working from home, working in the field, working um, in the office. It might mean flexibility in terms of like the work, the, the types of work that you're doing. Um, but people are looking for flexibility, whether it's time off, sick time, time to take, after, take care of their family, things like that. Um, and also grace, I think that's part of it as well. Job seekers are burnt out. Job seekers are exhausted. Job seekers, just like everyone else in the world, have experienced this um, this tragic event that we call the pandemic, and will have rippling impacts for years, decades, or even generations. Right? Folks are folks are tired, um, and it's hard to apply for jobs right now. Right? It is it's challenging. Um, there are so many steps. There are so many interviews. There's so much uh, opportunity and space to be let down. Right? So, folks have so much relying on their place of employment, like their healthcare, their housing, their food security. Um, And that's a lot of weight, right? So folks are really tired. I think recruiters need to remember to be compassionate, need to remember to be um, empathetic in this process.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with all of those things. I think one of the things that you know, I think would be very beneficial for both job seekers and employers is really looking at your entire sort of um, talent acquisition processes and identifying where you can cut out the BS right things mm-hmm. that aren't absolutely needed does your application need to be this long can we do, do they actually have to do this assessment does it really tell you anything about their ability to do the job right um <laughs> do they need to have an entire day of interviews or could we potentially cut this back what cost could you save on your end as a business doing that type of stuff right figuring out like how we can make these processes a little bit easier on job seekers i think would be useful on both sides because i think one of the things that um is pretty common with Gen Z from my perspective is that they don't like all the fluff and all the BS it's like look let's cut to the straight right <laughs> what mm-hmm. what do your what, what are your what is your company going to give me um, if I provide you this, right? That's sort of what they want to know at the end of the day. How does your company how does your company make sure that you are existing inside of the world in a fair and equitable manner? A lot of people are starting to be a lot more cognizant in, in, of that when they're making their employer selections. So I think a lot of the things that you mentioned are incredibly important uh, for them to sort of attract and retain that talent. Now, on the flip side, with the people who are are looking for jobs right now, do you have any particular advice for them and sort of what they should be doing or how they take care of themselves or anything?
1: yeah, for sure, and you know in the introduction, um you name that I'm a career educator, workplace equity consultant. I think that folks can go out and find a lot of the standard tips that mm-hmm. I could say by doing a simple google search and so mm-hmm. I, I want to speak directly to job seekers and say something that they might not have heard before, and that's that before you think about where do I find jobs, how do I write a resume, how should my bullet points look? remember that your worth is inherent, right? Remember that you are not defined by professional success, and while you have to rely on you know professional stability to secure income and whatnot, you are not defined by your professional um, identity. Like, we, we are all experts of our own experiences. And that's important to remember. And we are all deserving inherently of professional opportunities that fulfill us. Um, with that in mind, you know, I think that mindset super important. And that when you're pursuing um, a job search, when you're pursuing uh, an opportunity professionally, it's important to like, remember that it is not all of who you are. Um, outside of that, I would say, a lot of the clients who I work with could benefit from diversifying their job search, right? Um, Gone are the days where all of the opportunities will just be in one place, like a newspaper or one website somewhere, right? If you're not on multiple platforms, looking at multiple jobs uh, at once, then you're gonna miss out on lots of opportunities. And so I think that's a a really important um, piece of advice. It's not necessarily easy to diversify your job search, which platforms you're using, but just applying is not enough anymore. Applying needs to be supplemented with networking, reaching out to folks who are hiring, asking around in your industry, becoming an expert of the things that um, you're saying you know a lot about, right? You need to be reading the blogs, you need to be watching the webinars, uh, diversifying your job search in really intentional ways. I also think alongside that is good help, right? Um, There are a lot of people like me, like you, Tristan, who have learned the ins and outs of this messy thing we call the world of work. We've learned the rules of professionalism, right? Um, And they're not obvious to everyone. And if they're not obvious to you as a job seeker, it's important for you to to find someone to support you, whether that's a career counselor, um, if you have the privilege of going to a college or university, accessing that as a resource, um, or people in your life, whether they be family, friends, or otherwise, who can walk you through some of these steps, right? Um, It is not obvious to anyone the first time they're writing a cover letter what best practices is. And it's okay to, to need some support. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Look, you are, you are preaching all the right things for me. Uh, (laughs) Right. I tell people always to operate in your zone of genius and outsource the rest. Right. Mm. So if, if that, wait, 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 I
1: like that one. (laughs) Operate within your scope of genius. That's a good one. Yeah. Operate (laughs) in your zone of
0: genius and outsource the rest, man. Because, you know, it, we don't need to be a jack of all trades. We just simply do not. We need to focus in on the things that we're good at, the things we'd like to do, and become really good at those things, and then find the people who are really good at the other things we need done and bring them into our our circle, into our team. Right? Um, And whether that's a career coach or career counselor, whether that's a mentor, whether that's a sponsor, whatever it is, um, you know, those are the type of people that you need to bring in to help you go to those other levels. You don't know every everything, you shouldn't know everything. So, so you know, I think it's incredibly important to seek that help out when you realize, hey, I don't even know where to start. And I honestly wish somebody would have told me that when I was back in college. Because mm-hmm. when I got out of college, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was I was like, okay, I got to find a job. Hey, where do y'all look for jobs? Like, I don't even know where you look. I Usually, I just go into a store and be like, hey, you guys hiring? But that's not what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't know what was going on. So I wish somebody would have told me that. As well, so, uh, so yeah. That I, I appreciate that piece of advice. It's like seek the help that you need, but also understand that you know diversifying your job search can be a really, really great tool. F- well, I guess a really great avenue for you to get to where you're trying to go. That, like you said, just applying online is not going to work. Getting a foot in the door mm-hmm. it means you know networking, finding somebody. we know that referrals make you fifteen times more likely to land an interview than just applying online right so that that number in and of itself tells you that you, you really should probably try to to get
1: some ends here wherever you can so certainly um, so. certainly and it's a it's a gift to be able to refer someone right I think a lot of folks yeah. get worried that if they reach out to their network and ask for something they'll be seen as less than they'll be seen as needy as, a, as annoying right but when someone reaches out to me and they're like hey i know you're connected with this person could you advocate for me could you set up an introduction it's a it's an amazing gift that i can give them of my time of my energy of my network to, to say yes let's get you in the door like right let's do an informational interview let's get you connected with the right people so you can make the moves that you want to make um and it's not all transactional. But remember me, right? You know, there's this huge network that we're building where I do something in support of someone's professional career, not hoping or or waiting for them to do something for me, but knowing that when the time comes and I need some support, I've built up this trusting and authentic network that can and will support me when needed.
0: Yeah. Remember that law of reciprocity, right? You mm-hmm. scratch my back, I scratch yours 100%. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that's the other thing is we got to get out this mindset that like, you know, uh, we can't help people come up the crabs in the barrel mentality. Like now nah, we don't need any of that anybody. And I'm not trying to speak specifically to black folks. Cause that's not the case. It's, it's everybody. Um, like you can help out also let's keep in mind that many companies and organizations, if you're, you're getting a referral from an employee inside of there, they compensate the person who's referring you as well, yeah. uh, <laughs> for, for that situation, right? Like this could be very beneficial for both parties involved. So, um, You know, the other piece I'd say about that, too, is remember that when you're reaching out to people, everyone doesn't want to help and everyone's not obligated to help. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. But. You need to be persistent to find those people that we call boosters, those people that can help you, are willing to help you, that are naturally altruistic and want to do it. Um, don't let those couple of no's or those couple of uh, unresponded emails, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of guide you away from reaching out to other people. So find those, find those additional contacts wherever you can and keep the process going if that's the case. So, look we can talk about these topics all day long, but we're we're already 20 minutes into the pod, so <laughs> look, let's go ahead and shift the topic a little bit here. So, I like to usually talk about latest career and job search news trends, topics, and those type of things. Just discuss my takes with my, my guest co-host here. Um, mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, while snooping on your uh, LinkedIn profile, I found your article that you wrote uh, uh. for for the Vermont Connection and it's titled Reimagining an Anti-Racist Career Center Based on the Professional Identity Development Model for Black Students and Students of Color. And when I looked at this, I said, mm, I have to talk to Jake immediately. Mm. Yes. Okay? <laughs> so so Look, I've never worked in a career center myself. Um, I'll just start by saying that. I've worked with people who do work in career centers, whether that was as a student or on a board of a career development association. Um, I've also uh, currently do career readiness work for a workforce and economic development program at a local community college. So um, there's there's a lot of stuff that, you know, I, I do that's adjacent to the career centers. But... Since I've started this work, I've always had a bone to pick with career centers myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it first starts with their inability to sort of understand how to serve the black students and students of colors that mm. they work with in general. Um, and then secondly, from my perspective that I've seen, um, the disservice that many uh, career services Organizations at universities do for their students by not staying up to date on what's going on in industry and in practice and 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 the changes that are going on inside of uh you know the world of job searching um, but specifically when we talk about your article I think the, the first thing I just sort of want to talk to you about is what sort of prompted you to write this article? What, what sort of sparked this? I know this was um, in relation to some graduate work. so tell me a little bit about what what, what prompted this.
1: Yeah, for sure. So you know I've worked um, for eight years combined in paraprofessional and professional work in career centers. You mentioned never actually working in career centers. I at, the, at this time right now' I've worked in four different career centers Um, in various levels of capacity and leadership. Um, And I'll be completely honest with you, this is not news to any of my colleagues, but I've always been dissatisfied, both as a student and as a full-time staff member, right? Um, And not dissatisfied in the sense of like, oh, you know, we're intentionally bad or, or underserving our students, no, not at all dissatisfied because we 're not where I would like us to be, especially as someone who has been a you know a monoracial black student at a predominantly white institution at a college university in America right I, I think that we need to go a lot further um, what prompted this article Dissatisf- this being dissatisfied being ready for something new um during during school when i was when I was writing this article um I think that I think that I had seen a lot of a lot of opportunities for people to step in and support the most marginalized, the most underrepresented students, but then a resistance to it, either because of a lack of knowledge or um, systemic barriers that existed. Um, I think a huge, huge, huge issue is that higher education, as, a, as an industry, is so heavily um, staffed by white bodies, right? Um, Which just means that that lack of representation um, will result in, you know, a a lack of care, right, a lack of intentionality. I have always been the only openly queer young Black man, right, coming back to the identity pieces in the career centers that I've worked in, Um, which means that I have a unique uh, ability to access the experiences, the wisdom and the knowledge of the Black community of the queer community, of young professional communities, right? And so um, I think the first step in terms of the solution, and you didn't ask for solutions yet, but the first step in terms of the solution is diversifying the people who are in these roles and counseling our students. That's gonna help us get in front of the work, right? The other piece you mentioned was that queer um, centers tend to be using knowledge from a decade or two ago in the best case scenario, right? Some are still giving advice that's you know, 50 years outdated, um, and when I say 50 years I did it, I mean that, you know, in these things that we're talking about, how to, how to leverage yourself as a strong candidate, you'd be diversifying your job search strategy. We're not getting that advice from career centers, right? Um, and it's left to a few amazing career centers around the nation to be sort of the pillars of, of excellence and, and to teach other people how to do it well. But of course, they're not going to want to do that. There's no incentive, right? Because if my career center at X university is helping to graduate students feeling career ready feeling competent in their industry, then that's, that's proprietary information, right? I'm not sharing that with, you know, why university? Cause then they're gonna start graduating students who are at the same level. So there's that competition there and that's mm-hmm. holding back our, our entire industry
0: yeah 100% so interesting because all these institutions are at the end of the day there to do essentially the same thing right the way we build education especially higher education in this country is that it's to prepare people for the workforce and to mm-hmm. be able to get a better position in, in the world of work um, and if that's the case then it's like dude does it really matter where they get it like at the end <laughs> of the day at least they got it right but mm-hmm. you know that's not how it works um, that's not how capitalism works so we'll just go ahead and we're going to shy over that for a moment because we'll get into a whole conversation about that piece if we need to Mm -hmm. but um, (laughs) one thing that I thought was really now, I'm gonna be very honest. I'm very frank, and I, I don't know how you feel about bad cuss on this podcast. I think it's incredibly fucked up that you had to say inside of your article there was a there was something that you said inside mm-hmm. of your positionality statement, and it really just stuck out to me. And it was, I fear not the ways authoring this work may impact my academic, professional, and relational standing, right? And yeah. I just thought I was like, wow, the fact that he even had to sit here and think that like me criticizing the institution that I'm working in because I want it to be better for people, that I want it to do well, could even potentially affect not just my professional stuff, my academic stuff, my personal relationships, all of these things. Like, it's an we always have to sort of account for that when we start critiquing these institutions. And I think it's just incredibly messed up that you even had to say that in this article here.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, in communities of complacency, Right mm-hmm. there is this overwhelming overwhelming fear of progress of innovation, mm-hmm. right um, and just someone saying we could be better is terrifying for people who have internalized whiteness or internalized capitalism as the only economic structure for success right it, it's terrifying um, and so, as I was authoring this article, and I should have started, thank you so much for reading it. Anyone who visits the article and even <laughs> Uh, scrolls through it quickly. Thank you so much for checking it out. Um, that, that's always an exciting part of a scholar practitioner's journey. Um, yeah. But when I was authoring this piece, you know, I constantly thought, what if a future employer or hiring manager sees this article? What are they mm-hmm. going to think? Are they going to think yeah. that I'm not fit for higher education as an industry? Are they are going to think that I'm a um, difficult person to work with? Um, over the last four years, I've worked in a lot of different places. I mean, um, maybe not too odd for this this new generation of job seekers who are job hopping quite a bit. But you know, I was I was at the University of Vermont for eighteen months. I was at Suffolk University for twelve months, and now Boston University for the last nine months. You've caught me an interesting time. This is my week of fun employment. And so last week I worked <laughs> at Boston University, but next week I'll be transitioning into um, my fourth professional role out of graduate school. And so um, you know, each time I've been applying for these new jobs, I've been worried that i have a uh, a subsection within this article that is just blatantly professionalism is racist it's racism and you got to read into it before you actually know what i'm talking about but that can be off-putting to folks who don't understand the nuance of racism and anti-racism um and don't understand maybe my commitment to creating a more just world that's more habitable for black students Mm. first and let me be clear of my priorities um i know my experiences and i know who i can best support and serve. I have three young nephews and a niece who will one day hopefully have the opportunity to, to attend, um, attend college. And my priority is making sure that college and universities are more habitable for them and that job seeking is easier for them and students of color and the other marginalized populations. Right. So I think that's my work and it, it took a long time to get um, comfortable with being committed to that work openly um, yeah. for everyone to hear.
0: Yeah. Well, I commend you because I know that's incredibly difficult, especially as, you know, young professionals. We obviously have aspirations for our career. And, um, you know, even thinking that the fact that you are critiquing something because you want it to be better would be a reason for people to, um, you know, close doors or not want to work with you is, um, you know, it can be a frightening factor that runs a lot of people away from doing the work and the calling out that needs to be done in order for us to start making some shifts and changes. So I commend you on taking that step, putting that out there. It's hard to put put things out there, number one, just for people to judge and critique in general. But number two, that could potentially have some type of effect on um, you know, your future. Um, and so I commend you in relation to that. But um, in your article, you're, one of the things that you focus in on um, is the National Association for Colleges and Employees. Um, An organization that really is sort of, um, I guess, sort of the guiding light around some of these things when it comes to career centers and how they operate and function and the things that they're doing. Um, And you, you start by looking at an analysis between their sort of 2014 and 2019 editions of their professional standards document. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a couple things that you call out here that I really want to get into. And one yeah. of them you've already, you've already you've already spoken about was that no one is the no significant change or revisions in their things, um, which I found very interesting. The second is diversity as a buzzword. And the third is professionalism is racism. Um, now, when we talk about no significant change or revision in their stuff, you basically said, look, from 2014 to 2019, it's largely a an unchanged document you guys kept, mm-hmm. the, though the world has changed we've gotten more conscious around certain things apparently i'm gonna put that apparently in there mm-hmm. um yeah. things are some more so at the forefront they seem to not have addressed anything in relation to the pervasiveness of white supremacy culture in the field of career services and you say um, in this no significant change slash revision professionalism is a direct symptom of white supremacy culture and the work of career services is to open transformative dialogue around this pertinent topic and I, I made a comment here I said yeah. I love that and it's very interesting but I don't know if career services know that that's their <laughs> know that that's their uh, you know their, uh, that they have the ability to even do that to be honest um, Agreed. I, but I thought it was a very interesting thing to state here so what what were you saying here what did you mean by that um where did that come from i guess
1: yeah well i think it came from uh i was a a graduate student and i was very aspirational i was hoping that um 80 to 90 percent of career educators in america would read my article even though i knew that wouldn't happen right so i was hoping that a lot of folks would read this and you know what i think is important for career educators on college campuses to know is that um we get to be cultural influencers of professionalism. We collectively are uh, mobilizing this new generation every couple of years of job seekers and of uh, new professionals, right? So the things that we say and the things that we agree upon collectively can be, um, can be what exists, right? Um, and, and so while career educators and college campuses don't always know that it's their job to rewrite, redefine and reimagine what professionalism is and can be. It is their work, right? It is our work because Mm -hmm. without the thing as educators, we're teaching students who will go out and teach others. Right. And so uh, the work is ours. It has to be ours. Right. This is the burden that educators hold and carry um, of creating rippling cultural change in our society. Of course, artists hold it as well. you know, people who work in medicine or law or business hold it in different ways as well. But educators are really at this integral part in a young person's life where we get to Mm -hmm. define so many things for them. Um, And who says that professionalism can't be rewritten as something that not is reflective of Eurocentric cultural norms, but instead an open, inviting space for inclusive ideas and innovation. Um, And I think that's where we we need to go. So I, I think I wrote that in a way of, aspiration hoping that yeah. uh, folks would join me in this charge yeah. <laughs> and, and and commit to uh, a reimagination
0: and i love that aspiration i a complete i i love the entire statement i just was like i i i just want more people <laughs> to see it that way right like yeah. can, can, can we get more people to that space i think if we could even get them there we could we could do a lot of of work and change and i think what i really heard from that though you're speaking direct, directly to career practitioners is that um we all have a hand in changing the narrative in the way that we currently view and operate inside of these systems right and that's what i heard Mm -hmm. even though it was directed at career services professionals i really think that everybody in a sense has a hand in being able to do this no one's too small to start making changes in this space especially career service professionals as you said you know Career service professionals are sort of the 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 bridge between education and employers. So, yeah. you know, if you're going to be that bridge, you have the opportunity to change quite a bit on both sides of the table. And I think that's incredibly important for people who work inside of career services to really understand, right? It is a – you have a duty here that I think is incredibly important. So I, I love the aspiration. Uh, Certainly. And so yeah. I, 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 and, I definitely want to talk about and, it.
1: And just like I said before about, you know, the first question you asked me was – Um, what's going on with this job, market? And I said, it's changing, and our job seekers Mm -hmm. need to be dynamic. NACE, the National Association of Colleges and Employers, needs to be dynamic as well, right? So I I was frustrated in my research and my authorship when I realized there were no significant changes or revisions in this NACE document that should be, again, a cultural influencer of how we look at Mm -hmm. the world of work. Um, And so that frustrated me, and and I think that's what sort of inspired this section of, of the article.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then the next one you go into is that diversity as a buzzword. And so mm-hmm. you sort of talk about diversity being used in a shallow and superficial manner um, that really, you know, fails to accomplish the depth of urgency around tending to racial injustice. You talk about um how they state that, you know, career services should recruit, hire, and retain a diverse staff. But you also mentioned a diverse staff can be achieved by employing uh, folks with different academic backgrounds, areas of expertise, pedagogical practices, um, you know. And so it's a very ambiguous language here. And I, I mm. appreciate you calling out calling that out. So um, one of the episodes, early episodes, I had on one of my best friends, um, Dr. Clyde Barnett III, um, and he and I talk a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because in all frankness, though. I think there's a lot of good intent. I'm not a very big fan of D, E, and I, um, personally, because I think there's too much focus on the D and I and not enough on the E. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, I think that uh, diversity and inclusion in the context that we use them are shallow and superficial, right? You can have a room full of white people, and in that room, you can... It can be technically diverse, right? Um, based on different, depending on how you define diverse inside of this. When we include people, we have to ask ourselves, what are we including them in? Do we really mm. want inclusion in systems that are not there and built to support us and sustain us, right? So, it, the, the the diversity in the inclusion piece is always interesting to me because we always seem to miss the equity piece, which is about focusing on addressing the particular needs of different groups or different individuals, which I. Think think is the most important part of all of this work and so i really i really appreciate that you sort of call out this token inclusion like using a black face to present Mm -hmm. as supportive of black communities inside of there so uh, i just had to call that out because it it really resonated with me as somebody who who's sort of been railing against this whole idea of dei and like look we need to really get into the e piece of this because y'all are really focused on the dni and sometimes those you know those don't always work very well without the e for sure
1: for sure and let's be (laughs) honest right uh diversity is a fairly easy box to check right it's not it doesn't take a lot of systemic change doesn't take a lot of thought leadership diversity in and of itself just achieving pure diversity you might not need to change anything you might just need to look at a different uh demographic right because that room full of 50 white people that you mentioned before they might went to 50 different universities they might be from 50 different states in america right they might be from 50 different countries um, but here's the thing: diversity, while it is easy, is an important step in achieving equity, in my opinion. Right? Of course. Yeah. And um, and when you use diversity as a sort of like uh, either as a buzzword, just say, "Oh, I've included it six times." In my website check the box is checked. Um, or black facing an organization, right? Mm-hmm. I don't. I hate when I see a pamphlet or a webpage with three or four black people talking to each other. And then I click three times I go to the um the meet the team I click down into board of directors and the chief level employees and I see no black faces no brown faces mm-hmm. right you've black faced me you've lied you mm-hmm. you have you've created this false reality um to make me as a black consumer trust you a bit more and that's frustrating mm-hmm. it's disgusting it's pathetic right um mm-hmm. and so because diversity and achieving this um appearance of diversity is so easy to do it cannot be our last stop and i think that's what you're saying as well right we have to exactly we have to move beyond and it's almost as if like don't even give me that if Mm -hmm. what i really want is if it's equity or diversity skip the diversity right don't give me this website with um with with black faces or you know don't give me pride flags in june i don't want that what i want is this achieved realized equitable community that i can live and thrive in.
0: Yeah and I think if you I and see what I think is with the equity piece the diversity and inclusion comes right behind mm-hmm. it right um it, it you can't have the equity without the diversity <laughs> diversity and inclusion coming in um so like I think it's the the I 100% agree with you these are all stepping stones to get there but I think many people people see them as stopping points or no, yeah. the, the, right and so that's where I'm really coming from and I completely agree like we We should not be black-facing organizations. It should just not happen. Are you really putting your money where your mouth is? Are you really trying to make sure that we are addressing the unique needs of different populations, of different groups? And by naturally addressing those unique needs, we will get that diversity. We will get that inclusion inside of these spaces because they have what they need to thrive and to enter the spaces and Stay in those spaces successfully. And I think that's my biggest thing with the inclusion piece, right? We see this all the time. People bring in chief diversity officers or, um, they bring in, you know, the, the token C-suite black person and they're like, yes, we have, we have included people and we are now diverse, but then. They have not changed any policies, any procedures. Mm-hmm. They don't give them the actual budget or the power or the authority to make any of the changes. And and so literally, it just once again becomes a token of diversity and inclusion rather than something that actually drives the needle in a way, right? And so so yeah. I you know I, I I really appreciate that you sort of called it out. Like, look, I see diversity as a buzzword in here, and I see you using black people, but what's going on inside the actual organization here, right? Right. Um and so, I think people often don't have that conversation um as much as we should um We see d e and I everywhere now every it 's in every job posting it 's in <laughs> on everybody's website it's everywhere, and sometimes when things are everywhere it just dilutes the meaning of it and and i think that in sort of the significance of it and i think that's what i'm really getting as we see diversity we see inclusion it's really interesting in writing resumes i see a lot of companies that have d and i committees they're always skipping the e it's always mm. not there <laughs> right? and so i'll see things like that i'm like okay we're we're missing the big piece here um yeah. right so so yeah but um now the next concept, and this is the big concept that I think a lot of people don't always get, is about professionalism being racist. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about that from your perspective. I, I know what you said in the article. I know my own perspective around all this. But um, in relation to what you wrote or just sort of your ideas in general, professionalism being racist, what, what does that mean? How do we get to that conclusion? What do you, what do you think here?
1: Right, right. Um, it's a bold statement. Right. And this is not one that I oftentimes share with my with my um, with my clients. Right. I work as a workplace equity Mm -hmm. consultant and some of my clients bring me in for facilitated workshops or for inclusion audits or for other things. Very rarely am I going to start a presentation by saying, OK, professional is racist and and this is how you're going to make it not racist or um, this policy you're doing is racist. I think so often we get caught up in is it racist or is it not racist? where we really should be just striving for improvement and innovation progression, more inclusivity. Um, so th- I recognize the bold statement. I got to this point by looking at all of my professional experiences, looking at all of my professional expectations in the roles that I had had previous to uh, writing this paper and the roles that I, I had observed in my research, right? And professionalism as I have seen it, right, just through my own eyes, which My lens is looking specifically at the field of education. It's looking specifically at the roles that I was interested in. Um, Professionalism is reflected by Eurocentrism, by um, a certain type of attire, a certain type of hairstyle, a certain type of speech and language, articulation and diction, a certain um, collection of previous professional and academic experiences. All these things are very Eurocentric, right? And so if I were to superimpose uh, my blackness on top of professionalism, I see a lot of things that just don't match up, right? I see a lot of things that just don't, um, just don't work for flushes. And that's because not only is it is reflected um, by Eurocentrism, but also whiteness and white supremacy culture. Um, I think for all of those reasons, the systemic and individual barriers that exist uh, for people of color to access successfully professionalism and be seen as um, an expert or to be seen as elite um, is so challenging that there must there must be something wrong with professionalism in and of itself. Um, it is a system of rules. It is a system of behaviors and norms that are just not achievable for black bodies, not achievable for communities of color, um, and for all those reasons, uh, I deem I, I it appropriate to, <laughs> to title a certain chapter of this of this text. Professionalism is racist, and and you know my my goal is not as an author to convince anyone of that. Of that notion. Hopefully folks can ride along with me on the assumption and and find value in, in the rest of the work.
0: <laughs> so as somebody who has gone up through education systems as somebody who's worked in numerous corporate spaces um, as somebody who now works with many corporate organizations revolving around uh, many of these issues i will say i have had a very similar experience with you um i i really do believe professionalism is rooted in white supremacy it is it is racist right um at the end of the day um we have been taught how to conform to a society that was not built to us um, built for us mm-hmm. um and so that requires us as we've heard to do code code switching sometimes put on entire new personalities at work um and you mentioned this later in the article when you're talking about um the model the professional identity development model for black students and students of color but um You know, I I, I just go back to the time when I was working at a Fortune 500 company, Um, and I decided Mm -hmm. I was going to grow my hair out. And mind you, I'd never had an issue once ever in my life with anything around my hair because I've always kept a shortcut for the longest time. Um, And then I decided I was going to grow my hair out about... I would say about a year after being at an organization Um, in the amount of times that I was speaking with many of my colleagues or my leaders. And I just saw their eyes shift from looking at me to looking at my hair Mm. and looking back down or the blatant expression. Like I literally one day had to go into the office for – For a project I was working on. And I, I, one day I had my hair pulled up into a nice little bun. The other day I wore my hair, uh, the next day I wore my hair down and sort of big as, as like a nice little fro. Um, and then I literally had one of my white counterparts come up to me and say, Oh, I liked your, I liked your hair much better pulled back. It just looks so professional. Hmm. Right. Mm. Mm. Yep. Very interesting. Right. And these are the subtle ways in which we are reinforcing professionalism saying, hey, your hair like that is unacceptable in this space. I don't like it. It's making me uncomfortable. It doesn't look right here. Right. That's essentially the, everything I'm getting from that statement from this lady that decided to come up to me and tell me how she preferred my hair. Um, and, and when it had nothing to do with any of the things that we're doing or my ability to perform right. the job that I was doing. So right. um, for me, You know, these are the ways that I think professionalism shows up for black people. The moment I decided to try and be something that was very true to me, the way my hair naturally grows out of my head... Now Mm -hmm. we have some comments coming, and maybe you didn't mean it intentionally, and that's that's the unfortunate part about racism and white supremacy. It's incredibly ingrained in what we do, um, all overall, in general, right? For black and white people, because we all, black people also internalize white supremacy, Mm -hmm. uh, right? So we don't often always realize the statements that we're making are birthed from that place, um, and how that can be read or perceived by others. And so, um, all I can say is from my own experience the experience that i've i've had um but also the experiences that i've talked talked to my friends about or the the black women that i coach on a regular basis i mm-hmm. I, t- I would say that many of us tend to agree with your statement here yeah. <laughs> professionalism is racist it just simply is um so i thought this was all very very good conversation to have which led to this model that um you created and i'd really like you to tell us a little bit about this model um the and sort of you know what it is and and sort of how you hope it is used
1: certainly certainly so you know i have to give credit where credit is due um i think a lot of scholars start by just looking at the field, right looking at um, what exists around them and i have to give lots of credit to to david sue and and Daryl wing sue who in 2003 authored a very similar model about racial and cultural identity development um, that became sort of my jumping off point for very similar model, but specifically for students, so looking at a more narrow audience, as well as students of color within professionalism. So even a, mm. an even more narrow uh, purview. Um, this is a model, it's non-linear, but it just sort of outlines some of the different uh, steps and, and pieces of um, someone's journey, someone's journey that they might experience as a person of color moving throughout a world of work or throughout professionalism. Um, it outlines a number of different stages and these stages help to uh, articulate sort of what's going on uh, or what you might be experiencing. I think the biggest thing that I wanted to do with this model was give language to experiences that have in the past been um, unnamed. hmm.
0: Yeah, no, and I think you did that. So I'll, I'll tell you from my personal experience and reading this article. When I saw this model and I started to read through each one of your steps, I could literally pinpoint to the different parts mm. of my career journey from the time I exited college to literally quitting and doing my own business. Yeah, where I fit in each one of these models, where each piece of my life fit in this thing. Um, and so it was really interesting to me because you talk about the sta- the first stage, like. Uh, adoption right um where you know black professionals and professionals of color start to learn about the rules of professionalism you start to talk about the achieved assimilation right where, you know, to exist in different worlds, black professionals and professional colors create different lives that contradict one another. This is where that mm-hmm. code switching comes in. Um, the, the mastering performing two distinct versions of yourself. Um, then you talk about the third stage, which is dissonance, right? Um, and it relates very closely to that Sue and Sue model that you, you were talking about, but it's where people start to question why their experiences are not represented in professionalism. You start mm-hmm. to be like, well, why can't I do this? Right? Like why you start to observe and even criticize why professional language, attire, and overall behavior is so closely aligned with Eurocentrism. And then the fourth stage, alignment. Right where you know the, people begin to experiment with demonstrating their racial and cultural identities at work. That's where I started to grow out my hair, right, mm-hmm. and started to see those type of things and, and things pop up. Like, oh, okay. Um, and then that fifth and final stage, that creation stage, where it's centering that community care, right, where people are creating structures for safety for other professionals of color in the world of work. And I thought that was really um a great concept too. We see this all the time with m- black mentorship programs that happen in in different spaces, ERGs, diversity committees, task force, all those things. But another thing you specifically called out here that I'm glad you called attention to was that black professionals and professionals of color are not compensated for their additional labor (laughs) in creating racially affirmative practices or calling out injustice, right? We tend to participate in those things out of a feeling of obligation or duty to the people that come after us to try and make this space better for them. Um, When in reality, that's tough, hard work for people to mm-hmm. do and they should be compensated for that especially because it makes your company or organization looks good it changes the perception of your company and or organization the recruitment ability the talent acquisition a capacity that you have as an organization so all of these five steps for me i think were they resonated with me so deeply and like i said i could vividly categorize different parts of my life into these different stages of this model so for me i thought it was really great um i'd love to hear anything else you want to share about it i know we probably shouldn't give too much because i do want people to go and actually read the article we're gonna link to it in the show notes so i want people to go read it but but anything else you want to add around that model by chance
1: well, no, I mean, thank you again so much for reading it and thanks for sort of giving it your time and your attention. And, and it's clear that, um, that this resonated for you a little bit. Right. And that's because it's informed by my experiences and experience of the folks who I interviewed in preparation and uh, research for this for this article. Um, again, so much of it was just so I can give some names to things that I couldn't name previously for myself. Um, and, I, and I love that you went through each one and, and sort of can point out things that you've done in your own professional career uh, that feel aligned with that. Um, this is non, non-linear, of course, and so the goal is not for everyone to get to alignment or creation. It won't be everyone's responsibility to develop, you know, systems uh, of recruitment that focus on black folks or systems of retention, right? We don't all work in HR. We don't all have the capacity to do this, usually unpaid or underpaid labor. Um, But what's important to know is that there might be people doing this work in your organization or in your company. Um, And now hopefully folks will have the language to name it, to celebrate it, to call it out and to support it, right? If folks are having that dissonance, maybe we can find ways to help them get to a place of alignment where they're taking uh, care of themselves and safeguarding their own uh, cultural and identity conscious wellness, um, and then maybe we can, you know, garner more allies to help with the creation portion, right? Raising funds to ensure that there's uh, resources for affinity groups and and whatnot. Things are going to safeguard the retention of of black and 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 um, professionals of color.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. Um, And just so you all know, and I'll say this specifically for my career services professionals um, out there. Uh, Jake lists some list of demands, right? We're not talking about yeah. a recommendation section. It's a list of demands. And I love that. I love the change Um, mm-hmm. for NACE, but also for offices of career services and employers. And I'm not going to dive deeply into those because I want y'all to go look at them. I want you to go take a look at the recommendations, especially if you work in a career services field, there's an extensive list of recommendations and demands for you all in that space that I think would be very, um, very good things for you to look at, but also for you to start having conversations, opening conversations about inside of your offices with your colleagues in your next team meetings. Um, I think these would be really great things to bring to light and start, start you know, use this article as sort of the impetus to sort of drive that change that you might be seeking inside of those career services.
1: So, yeah, thank you for that, that plug. And, and I want to say that after I published this article, um, mm-hmm. I started getting... Uh, started getting messages from folks at different career centers asking me small questions or saying, "Hey, could you give us some prompting questions to digest this as a group together? Could you come and lead a facilitated workshop?" Um, and since then, that, that's really been the um, the jumping off point for my consultancy. And so I've I've done a lot of work to tour around this article to so a few different career centers um, and help them to process the information uh, as a group, as a collective. Um, If there are specific questions you have, please, 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 you know, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to come into either um, your staff meeting or group and uh, help you process some of these sometimes uncomfortable truths, right, dealing Mm -hmm. with and grappling with professionalism as these systems that we've talked about. So um, the work is not yours to do alone.
0: It is not yours to do alone, and Jake can help you. But I will, I don't know if Jake will say it, but I'll say it for you. Please ensure that if you reach out to Jake, that Jake gets paid for his time. Let's be mindful of what you're doing here, okay? Don't just reach out to him, expecting him to give you his, his brilliant mind, expertise, time, all of that for free. So if you're going, if this is going to be the impetus, the podcast is going to be the impetus. Tristan told you. To paycheck, mm. okay. Thank, <laughs> oh, you. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I just hate when people like I. I know, like when you are in this space of wanting to make change, um, oftentimes it's really easy to give up a lot of your time for the good of the the order, right? It's mm-hmm. like, hey, if this is gonna help, I want to. I want to try and help as much as I can, but we need to pour into the people that are helping as much as we can. And so I appreciate you even taking the time to do all this research and to do this writing, Jake, um, as you can see, this article resonated so much with me uh, so much so that our, our, our uh, episode is going to be almost an hour at this point. So I appreciate you also giving me extra time because I know we were planning on about 30 minute conversation. We my friend, so I,
1: I'm sorry. I took more time. I'm sorry. And we um, might need to call this part one. Cause there's a lot of things that we didn't cover. So well, let's get back on, uh, on the air and, and keep going at it sometime in the future.
0: Oh, absolutely. We definitely will. So let's go ahead and wrap up and tell the people where they can find you on the internet streets.
1: Certainly. Yes. So I'm most active on LinkedIn. It's where Tristan and I first met and where I meet a lot of new uh, new connections and new folks in my network. You can find me uh, at linkedin.com slash n slash jake dash small customized links. So it should be easy to find. I am the profile with the pride flag after my name. So just look for that. You'll be able to find it. Um, and then on, on Instagram and Twitter, I use the uh, username at I'm Jake Small, the letter I, the letter M, Jake Small. Or you can check out my website, www.imjakesmall.com.
0: Perfect. So all those things will be in the show notes. So make sure you go to check check out Jake on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and his website. And once again, Jake, I really appreciate your time today, man. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And I can't wait for us to have another conversation on the pod again soon.
1: Yes, certainly. Thank you. And thanks to all the listeners. Thanks. Bye-bye. Until next time.